It's absolutely a pleasure to have all of you join us today for this very fascinating interaction with a very, very interesting person, I must say, uh, Jaydi Prabhu. Uh, for, and he's actually part of our uh, Thinkers Dialogue. And I think this is our 21st episode of Thinkers uh, Dialogue. And uh, Jaydeep has been kind enough to accept uh, our invitation. So thanks a lot, uh, Jaydeep, uh, for being part of this. Uh, in fact, uh, Jaydeep and I possibly go back for at least a decade. Uh, and I think it was uh, the first time we met was with Navi when he was uh, doing his book on uh, Jugaad innovation. Of course, we've had many discussions on the word called Jugaad, positive, negative, and whatever. But then I think it was one of the most fascinating books uh, that I read at that point in time because uh, it was something wherein you were looking at uh, the idea of uh, how frugal innovation can do things. And then, of course, there were the next set of books uh, that you wrote on uh, frugal innovation. Uh, and I think they, they've just been one of the finest uh, set of books uh, that we've actually uh, seen. Uh, and other than that, Jaydeep is a professor uh, at Judd School of Business at Cambridge. He's done his PhD from there itself. Uh, his research interests lie in international business, marketing strategy, and innovation. Uh, but then most of all, he, he's worked extensively uh, in India as well, at least telling people what to do uh, and telling bureaucrats what to do. So that's the most important part because this is where this book also comes in on how should a government be, because that is one of the most difficult tasks to do, to really change the direction or change something like a big government that we might actually see. Uh, but then other than that, he's a very, uh, what do you call, he's done tons of publications, so you can always go to his website and see what he has done. Uh, but other than that, I think, uh, Jaydeep, uh, it's just been an honor to know you and uh, have you as a friend. Uh, so, uh, Jaydeep, uh, thanks a lot for joining in today. Uh, the format for today's session is a little different. Jaydeep will make a very quick uh, presentation for about 25 minutes. I'll we'll do a Q&A and then we'll open it up for people who have questions or we'll continue for uh, about uh, an hour. Uh, so, Jaydeep, uh, uh, over to you and thanks a lot for joining Thank you, Amit. It's uh, always a pleasure to see you and do events with you. We have done many before, as you've said, and had many conversations about so many different topics from Jugaad to frugal innovation to now, of course, what does this all mean for governments? So it's really a pleasure to be joining you on this session to talk about how should a government be? Um, and to do that, I will uh, have a short presentation. As you said, I'll share my screen. Um, I'll go through that uh, presentation and then uh, we can have a conversation uh, about uh, some of the things that come up. So uh, how should a government be the new levers of state power? Uh, now, as you know, uh, Amit, my career has been spent studying innovation, but really mostly in the private sector. And uh, particularly over the last decade or so, I've been very interested in this idea of frugal innovation. Uh, where, you know, along with co-authors, I've studied how increasingly we see small teams, sometimes of our students, um, who can do things that only large companies or big government labs could have done before. And we see these three teams develop highly affordable solutions, faster, better, and cheaper across sectors, from telecoms to financial services, healthcare, education, and so on. And often these Frugal solutions address social problems and impinge on public services and the state. Um, you know, so just to give an example of the kind of frugal innovation that I'm talking about, we see this in software. So WhatsApp is a great example of that, uh, you know, built by four people in less than a year with a relatively small amount of seed funding. 
And then they generated such huge value for hundreds of millions of people who use the app. Uh, and of course, value for the founders who uh, sold it to something like, uh, some for something like 20 billion to Facebook. So we see this in software. We see this also in hardware. This is a former student of mine at Cambridge, Eben. He was a mature student. He was doing his uh, executive MBA with us part-time while he was teaching in the computer science department here in Cambridge. And his role was, you know, uh, student admissions. And he and his colleague found uh, that fewer and fewer young people in the UK were applying to study computer science, even in Cambridge. And the ones who applied had never really opened a computer and played with it or done any coding. So, you know, the uh, group of them, small group said, what if we come up with a basic computer? You see him holding it in his hand, microprocessor, that, you know, they would have to uh, tinker with it, uh, combine it with other hardware, and they would have to code for it. Um, and it would be so cheap that if they broke it, it wouldn't be a big deal. So they came up with this Raspberry Pi. Initial one was about $30. They now have a $5 version. And they thought they would sell a few thousand units. They've sold hundreds of, no, not hundreds of thousands, millions of these now, not only to kids, but um, to their parents, even the dads who are using these devices along with other devices to make internet of things, frugal solutions, hardware solutions. So we see this in software and hardware. We see this phenomenon in emerging markets like Kenya, where Vodafone introduced this service M-Pesa in 2007 to enable a lady like this from a village in Kenya to use her basic Nokia phone to call her son, who's working in Nairobi, earning a regular income, not only to speak to him, but to ask him to send money home in an emergency, which he could text to her from his mobile. She could accept it on her mobile and then cash it in the corner shop in the village, which was an M-Pesa agent. And of course, you see equivalents like this in many other countries. This is financial inclusion done frugally, taking what's already there, people already having cell phones, using texting, having uh, corner shops in their, in their village. So you see this in emerging markets, but you see this phenomenon also in developed markets. So this is a spin-out company from University of California at Berkeley called Cellscope. And they make a host of these medical devices that basically leverage the computing power of your smartphone and its connectivity uh, to enable telemedicine. And these devices are a fraction of the cost of the standalone devices. So this is an mm -hmm. otoscope that a mother can use to take very high resolution pictures of the inner ear of her daughter when she has an infection and send it to a consultant somewhere else. Uh, and as I said, these devices are extremely affordable and they enable telemedicine, and they have all kinds of other devices. So, you know, uh, my co-authors and I, we spent uh, over a decade studying this phenomenon, as I said, mainly in the private sector. We wrote a book in 2012 that you alluded to called Jugaad Innovation, which was very much about this phenomenon in emerging markets like India, and what Western companies going to these countries could learn from their counterparts. After this book came out, you know, we wrote a follow-up book, as you said, called Frugal Innovation, which was about the same phenomenon, but in the West. And in this book, we looked at how large Western companies were adopting these approaches. And, you know, over the years, I have spoken about these books to many different audiences. And wherever I have gone, invariably, there has been someone in the audience who has, who has said to me, so what does all this mean for governments? You know, and so I kept thinking about it and people would give me examples of such uh, innovations in government. 
And um, I realized that there were two aspects to this question. What does this mean for governments? First, there was the question of what it means for governments within the government in how the government does its work, uh, how the government delivers for its citizens. So governments could do their innovation in their services faster, better, cheaper. But then there's another aspect to this question, which is the role of the government in the economy, how the government should foster and encourage and regulate this kind of frugal innovation in uh, the economy. So, you know, I uh, thought about this question, uh, researched it and, you know, began to write this. And after five years, I have this book as a kind of summary statement of my thinking on the topic. And uh, what I did in researching the book was, first of all, to go back to what people have said about how should a government be. And really, it's a, it's a big, long, old debate. For at least 100 years, there's been two polar views on this subject. Uh, on the one hand, you have those you can call libertarians. These are people who are generally skeptical about governments. They think that you know, governments are inefficient and ineffective at best. Um, and at worst can be dangerous because you know, if you give them too much power, they have a monopoly over power and they would misuse it. Now, the other end, you have status. These are people who are much more optimistic about government's role. They think that governments are the only force that can actually redress some of the vagaries and injustices of nature or the market. And like all polar debates, each side obviously has an element of truth. I mean, of course, governments can be inefficient and ineffective. Um, but equally, there are many things that perhaps only the government can or should do. And so the question I ask is, given that the government has a role, you know, uh, in most countries, it has an important role. Uh, and that list of roles is expanding. How can governments be effective and efficient? How can we ensure that they are that? And of course, without trampling on our freedoms, uh, the privacy of our data and the security of our data and things like that. And how can they do this, not only in stable times, but also in crises like now? And you know, I try to explore this question that can governments do this and how can they do this empirically by looking at case studies from around the world. And I start with India, you know, a country that I know fairly well. And I start with a project that all of you are very familiar with in India, the Aadhaar. And um, you know, I look at how uh, uh, Nanda Nelekani came into the government um, to lead this project and. Uh, how, you know, there was a very simple idea to give everyone a unique ID linked to their biometrics and a few demographics, and how in a relatively short time, probably around five years or so, almost every Indian got a unique ID, and this was done at about a cost of a dollar per ID. So that, you know, shows that governments, even countries like India, can do things, you know, which are ambitious, efficiently, and effectively, and in, on the point of uh, the effectiveness, you know, uh, there are estimates that in the very first year that the government linked uh, Aadhaar to various uh, benefits, um, like subsidized cooking gas, things like that, uh, they were able to save more money than the whole program cost in a single year that they introduced it uh, in 2014, 2015, by eliminating fraud in the system. So I argue in the book that, you know, uh, if you look at a, a project like Aadhaar, it shows that governments can be effective and efficient. 
But of course, there have been issues with uh, projects like Aadhaar. You know, the moment you start collecting data on people, there are issues around privacy, the security of the data. And of course, that's when in a country like India, civil society steps in, the press steps in, uh, they do investigative journalism, you have, you know, uh, activists getting involved. And then eventually we saw in India's case, the Supreme Court got involved and they had to rule on what was the legitimate constitutional use of Aadhaar and what was not. So, you know, it's important, these things can be done, but you know, you need oversight as well. I then turned to another very large emerging market, our neighbor, China, and look at an, a project that was initiated in China uh, the last decade, their social credit system, which is a national program that tracks the economic and social reputation of citizens and businesses. And the idea is very ambitious. It's to give all Chinese citizens and businesses a credit rating based on both their economic and social behavior. Now, we see some of these kinds of things in most countries, like in the West, you have credit scores, right? You know, so based on your financial behavior, economic behavior, you would get a credit score and that's used by banks to give you loans and so on. In China, they're going further and they're also looking at your social behavior, both personal as well as community. Like your online behavior can be policed. They could uh, have neighborhood watch uh, and behavior based on your, or scores based on your behavior in public transport or you know, uh, as a citizen. And then these ratings that you get have real consequences for you. So you could, if you had a good rating, get access to loans, which are interest-free, all that kind of stuff, you could thrive. But if you have a bad rating, then you could suffer real consequences, including uh, uh, limits to your freedom of movement and things like that. Now, interestingly, you know, we can see that this can become quite intrusive and uh, quite controlling. So far, Chinese citizens seem to think that this is mostly for their benefit. It'll uh, discourage bad behavior, it'll punish bad businesses. A survey found that 80% of people who responded had joined some kind of commercial social credit system. But many were not aware that this is also part of a government system. So it could be partly ignorance. But in general, so far, people have approved of this in China. But we can see how something like this, if linked to things like facial recognition, which is on a massive scale in a country like China, you know, could be used by governments against minority groups. And you know, there are serious concerns here around um, individual freedoms and rights. So in many ways, I say that you know, we've seen, we can see now around the world in countries like India and China, not you know, necessarily the most advanced countries, but very large complex countries, governments are able to do impressive things in terms of innovation, often using digital, but there are you know, possible issues around how that's being managed and run. And in some ways now in the pandemic, you know, if you look at the global situation, we face a situation that's a bit like how the world was in the 1930s, not exactly, but you know, in the 1930s too, the world was suffering from the consequences of Great Depression, just like we are suffering consequences of financial crash. And of course, there were different state systems. Um, you know, uh, there was uh, in the Soviet Union, a communist system, there was Nazi Germany, and then there was the New Deal in the US. And in that context, uh, Keynes uh, observed that the authoritarian state systems of today seem to solve the problem of unemployment at the expense of efficiency and freedom. But he argued that it might be possible by uh, the right analysis of the problem to cure the disease 
whilst preserving efficiency and freedom. And I think it's that balance that he was trying to look for that I'm also seeking in the book. How can governments balance effectiveness, efficiency, and freedom? And I argue that today governments really have many new levers, just like companies, like, like the digital giants have shown us. Governments have those tools as well. They have access to new technologies, often digital technologies. They have access to new forms of organization and they can use this to do things faster, better, cheaper, to be incredibly efficient and effective if they want to. But then how do we ensure they also help us preserve our freedoms, the privacy of our data, security of the data? So I argue that if governments have to manage that balance, they have to adopt five principles. They have to be responsive to citizens, placing them at the heart of what they do. They have to be inclusive, balancing the competing needs of different groups of citizens. They have to experiment, constantly trying out new ideas and getting evidence of what works. They have to be entrepreneurial in that they have to be proactive and they have to engage early with key players and technologies and they have to be innovative throughout. And I argue that that's not enough. You also need citizens to play a role. Citizens have to hold their governments to account and ensure that their governments adhere to these principles. So I'll just briefly before I end, run you through these principles and how I uh, address them in the book. So basically each chapter will look at a, looks at a principle and I have typically one or two big cases that I look at to uh, elaborate on that principle. So when I look at how states can be responsive, I argue that they have to citizen-centric. This means they have to work outside in rather than inside out. They have to work from the perspective of the citizen backwards rather than from the perspective of the bureaucracy in terms of designing and delivering their solutions. And that they should involve citizens as well in this process. I look particularly at public services uh, and social care in particular, which has become very important now in the pandemic. And I look at this very remarkable social care organization in the Netherlands called Burtsorg, which is completely patient-centric, which has a lot of the effort and the resources placed on the front end where nurses and patients form the relationship. And they have a very light back office enabled by some light touch IT. Uh, and basically, this is very effective in being responsive to the needs of the citizens and the patients very much outside in rather than inside out. I then turn to how the state can balance the competing interests of different groups of citizens. And here I look at how Denmark for over a decade, have, no more than a decade, several decades, has employed this principle of flex security to how it designs its social security system. So basically it gives flexibility to employers uh, in the labor market so that it's easier for them to hire and fire, but equally it protects the interests and the uh, security of job seekers by training them and enabling them to quickly uh, retool for a changing economy. I also look at lots of various experiments in the space of universal basic income and related schemes that have been taking place around the world. And you know, theoretically, we could argue that the UBI has benefits and drawbacks, but the key question is, how does it actually work in practice? And so I look at you know, that question, um, and that actually leads me to my next principle, where I argue that states really need to try out these new kinds of ideas constantly, just like companies do 
um, and constantly in pilots, collect data, uh, get evidence of what works, and then scale uh, the best solutions. And here I look at what the UK has done in this space uh, by creating a behavioral insights team in government that has expanded very quickly, applies the latest thinking in uh, behavioral science and uses the experimental method, just like uh, healthcare and pharmaceuticals do, to actually do randomized control trials to see what works. And on the basis of that evidence, then policy is made and delivered. And there is now uh, a whole network of what works um, uh, departments or foundations which look at uh, disseminating the evidence, latest evidence on what works in terms of education policy, in terms of criminal justice, and so on. So those three principles are very much about how the government should do its own work. I then turn to principles about how the government should manage the economy. And here I argue that when it regulates the economy and new technology, you know, states need to be entrepreneurial. They have to be proactive and engage early with new technologies and players. So earlier on, I mentioned M-Pesa, the service that was developed in Kenya, and a lot has been written about how Vodafone did it as a company, how they innovated. But actually, for me, a very interesting part of the story is the role that the Kenyan central bank played. So they engaged very early with Vodafone. They identified some of the issues uh, that they were concerned about to protect the safety of citizens, uh, like, for instance, how robust was the system, uh, how uh, compliant would it be with international money laundering standards, and so on. And then they got independent consultants to evaluate it. And very quickly then, after doing the due diligence, they gave uh, Vodafone the go-ahead. So they were able to encourage and nurture this innovation, foster it, but equally protect consumers. And, you know, they did this in a very proactive way. I also turn to autonomous vehicles, which are now a very big deal in many countries. Uh, and countries, in fact, are competing with each other to attract investment in the space and to encourage many different players to come together to make this industry happen. So here I look at how different American states are competing with each other in terms of their regulatory policy and also how the UK has created a very light touch regulatory regime for testing. So there are very clear but simple rules of how you might go about testing your vehicles, your autonomous vehicles on uh, normal roads, both city roads as well as highways. So that kind of creating that regulatory framework early to encourage people to come in and test is a very important way, I think, of encouraging new sectors in the economy while protecting citizens. And it's not just about regulation, it's a bigger question of cultivating the, these new sectors and new technologies. So this is what we might call industrial strategy. And again, I look at autonomous vehicles and I show how in the UK, for instance, they created a center for connected and autonomous vehicles that not only ensures the regulation attracts players to try and test, but they also have created certain challenges like competitions with a small amount of seed money to encourage different players to come together to collaborate in experimentation to move the envelope in this space. So, you know, this will this has encouraged uh, collaborations between large and small uh, car companies, software companies, telecoms companies, insurance companies, cities, and universities. Um, and many very interesting experiments are happening. 
And the idea is that when these various companies get information and evidence, they will be able to move forward with this new technology. We see something similar happening in the US in particular, but also in Europe in the space race. Um, and in the US, for instance, NASA is very cleverly leveraging private players in the space in order to achieve its own objectives faster, better, cheaper. So we see NASA working not only with Boeing and all those old companies, but also with the likes of Blue Origin and SpaceX uh, to achieve its objectives of going to the moon and Mars. I, in this uh, chapter, I also look at cities like Barcelona and how they've been working with maker communities and maker spaces like the Fab Labs and so on to encourage people in cities to come up with new types of Internet of Things solutions, um, which have uh, the obvious advantage of uh, tapping into the creativity of people in cities, but also perhaps creating an ecosystem around a new type of manufacturing, which is much more sustainable in micro factories and so on. And my basic argument in this chapter is that states have to play a very delicate, important but delicate role when they are uh, cultivating the economy. They have to sort of coordinate the activities of others and they have to resist the temptation of trying to do everything themselves. This is a temptation that I think the Indian government of, often falls into of trying to control and run everything themselves. Instead, I argue that states should steer, but not row. They should orchestrate the activities of others, but not try and do the work themselves. And then in my final chapter, I look at how states can create a culture of innovation throughout the government, how they can encourage people within government to try out new ideas. I look at this at the level of the city. Uh, I look at it in Boston. Uh, I look at how Canada has done this at different levels from city to the state to the federal level and how when you get from the city to the federal level, it becomes harder to create this kind of culture of innovation. And then finally, I look at Bangladesh, our neighbor, which has done very interesting things in the space through a UNDP-led program that was initially about digitalized government, but then became more about a culture of innovation in government. So they first looked at uh, quick wins where every government department could do one thing, small thing using, using digital that could make a big difference. Then they went on to do serious training for civil servants at different levels, all the way down to the grassroots, where they would have them actually attend, go to get a government service, stand in line like a normal citizen and observe what the process was. They would do it for some other department, then they would do it for their own department, and then they would realize just how difficult it was sometimes for ordinary citizens to get access to services. And based on that insight, then they would go through a process of trying to simplify the service and see what steps could be removed and what could be done digitally. And for all these processes, they have a metric they've created, which they call TCV, which stands for time to the citizen to access the service, the cost to the citizen of accessing the service and the number of visits that the citizen has to make. And so they use this metric to benchmark all their government services and to improve them over time. So those are the principles for government. And in my final chapter, I then reflect on the role of citizens. So if governments uh, have to be all these things, what do citizens have to be? Well, first of all, they have to be engaged and informed. That's more or less uh, obvious. They have to know how to choose good leaders and not only hold leaders and governments to account at the time of elections, but also between elections. 
Um, they can, of course, put pressure on governments through citizens' movements, activism, and so on. But I argue that probably the best way to change a government is to go and work within the government, for the government or with the government, and change it in that way. So that is my book in a nutshell, Amit, and um, I will stop sharing now and hand it back to you for a discussion. Amit, I think you're on mute. Yeah. No, thank you, Eddie. This is, this is just fascinating, but I have tons of questions uh, uh, that come to my mind. Uh, you know, like, uh, I'll go in the serial order in which you have actually uh, uh, talked about it. The most startling thing that you did say at the beginning of your talk was about the idea of statists and libertarians. And this has been a debate for ages and it is a debate which is happening now as well. Uh, what you might actually say as populists and authoritarians or whatever, that, that's a very similar kind of debate that is happening. And I do concede as to what you say that uh, there, is, there is not one single party who's right. Like both of them have their own points of view. But where do you think, how do you really bring this thinking together? Because if you go on to the extreme libertarian view, things are really uh, laissez-faire is not going to work. There are always going to be issues. And a, a hard uh, fact of the government or the hard hand of the government or the heavy hand of the government will also not work. So how do we really find that uh, delicate balance? Where, where does it stand? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, that's the billion, trillion dollar question at the moment when our politics seems so polarized, you know, it's not just in one country. We see this polarization globally. And, you know, it's uh, in some cases, it's so heated that um, there is no possible, apparently, rational discourse, you know. <laughs> we just seem to have people sort of talking at each other or past each other, and we have gone into tribes. And so in a way, I'm trying to sort of get us away from that kind of heated, uh, uh, purely pol political kind of discourse and saying, look, there are practical things we need to get done, right? That whether you are on the left or on the right, you're going to agree. Like in a pandemic, there are certain things that, you know, you just, everybody agrees, most people. Of course, at the far right and far left, you know, there will be people we will never be able to convince. You know, if you are just incapable of seeing the role of government, then it's hard to convince you. And if you think that, you know, the markets are always evil and companies are always evil and only the state can, you know, it's very hard to talk to people like that. But I would argue that there is a vast middle ground where most people will agree, look, you know, we have a pandemic on. We need a vaccination program. Let's do that quickly. Let's do that as, as cheaply as possible. Let's do that if, as effectively as possible. And while we're doing that, let's ensure that we protect the rights of people. We don't, uh, you know, take advantage of people. And of course, when we return to stable times, there'll be other things governments have to do. So I try to shine the light on those kinds of practical things and then say, okay, now, if we have agreed that this is a practical thing to do, how can we do it well? So, you know, one thing that governments across the world have, have had to always do is to hand out money to people, you know, uh, benefits, if it's social security or in a situation like a pandemic, you know, furloughs or whatever it is, that's the role that governments have to do. They have to hand out money to people. Now, how can governments do that better without fraud? This is where India has developed an interesting system. In some ways, it's ahead of many systems, even in the West. Now, in the US, for instance, during the pandemic, huge amounts of money were being handed out, but governments were having to cut checks, which is a very slow process and open to fraud. 
in India, thanks to things like the Aadhaar and so on, these things can, and of course, link to the unified payments interface. And, you know, we have a whole FinTech now ecosystem, the so-called India stack, where lots of these things are digitized and can be done, uh, you know, through devices. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. An example is Italy, where Italy has changed governments and they've had left-wing and right-wing populists often in actually in coalition with each other. They had this platform of uh, universal basic income, again, handing out payments. And basically the, the government changed, but they continued with the policy and the people who are running that uh, particular service made this point, and I quote them in the book, that regardless of your ideology, you will agree that you know if you're doing something, you want to do it effectively. So if you're going to give people money, how can we do that in an effective way so that they get that money on time, but equally, you don't have fraud in the system? So I try to sort of deflect that heated debate by looking at these practical things. That's, a, that's probably the most appropriate way of doing it, that we have to find the middle ground and find the appropriate ways of doing it. And you yourself said that there has to be the right metric of how do we measure the impact. And that, that's going to be very, very critical. But just moving ahead, you made a very important point here on rights of citizens. Uh, you know, and you, you did talk about the China example in terms of like how they're really trying to look at uh, measuring social behavior and social conduct and economic conduct and all that stuff. Uh, do you think it's a very dangerous precedence. Do you think countries across the world can actually follow it? Because the biggest worry uh, for the world on using technologies and databases is that the rights of citizens can actually get severely manipulated. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the things that I really uh, think quite a lot about, not only in the book, but almost on a daily basis. Because, you know, actually starting with my interest uh, in innovation in the private sector, this whole notion of frugal innovation. So, you know, my co-author and uh, co-authors and I, we've kind of celebrated this idea of frugal innovation. We've largely, you know, focused on the positives. But there are some pretty scary downsides. We know the power of big tech, right? If we think about the power of the digital giants, it's unimaginable how much wealth they have created for a relatively small number of people and how much control those very wealthy founders have. If you and, and their power and wealth is increased during a time of crisis like the pandemic because they're in a very important sector, digital. So you think about Amazon, you think about Google, you think about Facebook, you know, they have immense power and sometimes greater than the power of even uh, large governments. So when uh, there was this problem around Cambridge Analytica, uh, you may remember there was this scandal about the use of uh, people's data from Facebook uh, or the misuse of this data uh, to send targeted ads to people to influence their voting during, say, the Brexit referendum or the uh, presidential elections in the U.S. Um, the U.K. government summoned uh, Mark Zuckerberg and he just said no. I will not come. Why should I come? And he did not show up before the UK Parliament. He showed up before the UK, uh, the US Senate. Uh, maybe he felt that that was too much to take on. But uh, even there, it was a pretty ineffective interrogation that he got. And Facebook has really not done a whole lot uh, to change its uh, basic business model because it's not. It's not in its interest to do that. Um, and probably will only change if there is serious antitrust action taken against it. And that is also tricky to do, as I explore in the book. 
so you know if you see if you if you see the power that companies have been able to accumulate on the back of digital innovation then you can imagine how much more there is you know that governments can do to accumulate power and control over their people and potentially the role of uh, the the justification for a government is that they have a monopoly on a means of uh, violence right so so uh, this is very worrying and while we can see the benefits of governments doing using digital and getting data on their citizens we can also see the downside so the question is how do we then what are the uh, institutions we put in place what are the rules we put in place what are the governance mechanisms we put in place to protect citizens and their rights how do we keep that data in public ownership so to speak where it can be constitutionally governed uh, it can be governed by the uh, executive or the legislature or the judiciary um, and you know people like nanda nilaykani have argued that really on balance it's better to have that kind of data in public ownership rather than private ownership so his argument for having a national id like aadhaar and keeping that data was that it's better somebody is going to do that it would probably have been a private sector company a telecoms company or facebook that would have basically been the effective id for people and then they would have had the data and that data may not even have been in your country right it would not have been it may not even have been stored in india so it's far better that that is owned by the government so to speak it's in the public domain and it's subject to all the constitutional checks and balances so you know i'm kind of persuaded that there is some merit to that argument it certainly does make sense but then we are having this very interesting debate across the world as well basis your what you're saying that how this data during the times of the pandemic the governments have actually instilled or installed a lot of controls and things and that data is getting collected uh, and probably the movement towards withdrawing those controls is possibly not happening in many countries uh, so is it also true that governments once they uh, what do you call taste the blood they will not let it go so because to your point it is important that it should be in public domain it could be a controlled system no access or whatever but once governments taste this do you think they will let go that is a that's a big question and this is why you know i don't easily dismiss libertarian arguments about the negative powers of the state and trying to minimize as far as possible the role of the state you know so that is a very persuasive argument to keep states as far as possible light and the role of the state as minimal as possible the one is an efficiency argument you know that states could then just be wasteful and spend public money you know because there's no competitive pressure on them but i think an even more persuasive argument is the one you just made that once they have tasted control and power it's very hard for them to relinquish it it's true of companies but it's even more true of governments and i think you know having grown up in india having had a lot of dealings or at least you know from arms length not directly with the indian government it's very true in india you know the mindset of not just politicians but bureaucrats is often one of control not one of relinquishing and a partnership with citizens but it's controlling citizens and you can see where that comes from i think there are historical roots right every country 
you know, the government is what kept the country together. It was, you know, the unity and integrity of the country and you have to control these kind of splittest kind of forces. But, you know, in the 21st century, we have to move towards more of, especially in a democratic country, of trusting uh, our citizens to do the right thing and therefore giving them more power and actually moving the locus of power more into communities closer to citizens. I mean, and that in my, you know, in that first chapter where I talk about being responsive and placing citizens at the heart, it's, you know, I say you can do this in two ways. You can either move power closer to the citizen or move citizens closer to the center of power. And by that, I mean, like you can devolve power so in a large country like India, you can move power away from the center to the states, from the states to the cities, all the way down to the village level. And India has made a lot of progress in that. Or you can use digital to bring your citizens much closer to the center of power and eliminate all the middle, all the hierarchies and so on. You make it flatter. And in fact, I mentioned the digital Bangladesh program. There's a very impressive person there who I write about, Anir Chaudhary. Um, he works for the END, UNDP in the prime minister's office. And he talks about government in your pocket. That is his ambition for Bangladesh, that all Bangladeshis will have this tool in their pocket, just as you know, I was saying uh, you know, companies have used this uh, for more, uh, you know, uh, telemedicine and things like that. His is that this will be your route to government, to government services, all delivered in your pocket through your mobile phone. So you know, I think... We have to do more of that and, and change the mindset. So two points emerge here from your thing, Jaydeep, and I have two questions and I'll ask them together. One is you, you, you said something very important about bureaucracy. Of course, in, in the way Indian bureaucracy works, it possibly has huge roots uh, through the British Raj, uh, especially what happened during Macaulay's time and how they kind of created that. Uh, and we have, we have, in fact, uh, mastered that system more than the British now. Uh, of course, you, you live in Britain, so you know it. Like bureaucracy out there is very different than what happens in India. So how do we really encourage that the bureaucratic control gets reduced? Uh, because uh, what, what, bureaucracy has its own place. They, they make a great contribution without a doubt. But we have to find a way to balance that whole aspect. And how do we do that? The second point, you know, like power in the hands of government versus the private sector. Uh, there is also a dangerous precedence that was set up during the U.S. elections. Uh, and I've always questioned that. And I, I would like to put that question to you as well. When Twitter bans a sitting U.S. president, right or wrong is a very different thing. But then you actually suddenly start infringing on the debate that can actually happen or a point of view. Uh, because who are the guardians of a democratic process? Because suddenly companies can actually start talking about a certain set of consumers and customers. Yeah, so both great questions, Amit, and uh, I do try and address them in various parts of the book. So the first one about bureaucrats and the mindset, this mindset of control, rather than, you know, wanting to row, as I put it, rather than steer. This is very hard. And I have actually uh, had the good, very good fortune of engaging quite closely with bureaucrats from many countries over time, particularly through doing leadership training programs with senior Indian civil servants, but also UK civil servants, European civil servants, civil servants from Malaysia, Singapore, Nigeria, et cetera. And, you know, it varies, but there's still this idea that, you know, in India, you even call the, I think the IAS called the steel frame. The civil service is like the steel frame. 
um, you know, there's this idea that it's holding the country together and that, you know, they have to exercise that power and control. But, you know, that world is no longer, we are not no longer in the 19th century or 20th century. Um, and companies, for instance, that operated that way, that it was our way or the highway, we would use our monopoly power to force products on you, have gone the way of the dinosaurs. They've learned that they have to work with communities, particularly in a digital world. You know, they're not even the owners of the brand, they're sort of custodians of the brand. They facilitate relationships on a platform. They facilitate exchange, you know. And by giving away, ironically, by relinquishing some of this power and control, they have created enormous wealth. Think about Amazon. You know, in a way, Amazon did what the Soviet Union was trying to do all along and failed. The Soviet Union tried to run the economy in this very regulated way, basically manage supply and demand in a very controlled uh, scientific way, and they just couldn't do it. Amazon, with very light touch, you would say, relatively with digital technology, just being a kind of a digital platform, is coordinating supply and demand. And But by giving power to them and retaining uh, some percentage of the value created in the process. So, you know, governments could be similarly efficient and effective by relinquishing control. And, you know, also keeping in mind, what is the role of the government? It's to serve the people. You know, I mean, it's a cliche to say it, but it's true. It is not to control the people, it's to serve the people, to enable people to flourish economically, socially, and so on. And I think some of the, when we see governments around the world, the ones that are the most effective are really operating closer to that spirit. I wouldn't say anyone is still in that spirit because they still have this mindset of having to control and maybe it's true in some areas of the economy and maybe it's true in a crisis, but you know, in stable times, it really, for me, the principle is figure out how you can steer the economy, but not do the rowing, you know, because there are many other players that will be able to do lots of things. Economies are too complex for any one organization to be able to run. You need lots of other organizations. I mean, take the pandemic. It's a great example, actually. You take the vaccine program. Okay, that, so the UK has done many things wrong during this pandemic, but one thing it seems to have got lucky, somehow it's got right, is the vaccination program. And it has taken many different parts of the economy to do that. So Oxford did a lot of the early research because they have that expertise, but they couldn't take it to scale, right? So then you need a company like AstraZeneca to come in to do all the clinical trials and then to do manufacturing at scale globally and so on. And then you need the NHS to actually put it in arms, right? And all this needed to be coordinated. And actually the team in government that did it, they brought in someone from the private sector, a bit like Aadhaar, they got somebody who was a venture capitalist who knew how to take calculate the risk in a way that bureaucrats cannot and will not do. And she placed bets and so on, on different vaccine programs, on different vaccines. The same thing happened in the US actually during under Trump. So anyway, so you know that's that first question. On the second question, that's another massive one, right? How have we got to a point where there are some companies run by a few individuals that are enormously wealthy and enormously powerful and can decide who can have a voice in society and can decide that the president or a former president will be silenced, will be canceled. That's enormous pressure, right? Uh, 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 it's enormous power. Um, and I think this is where, you know, now, I think it's a little too late with social media, frankly, because these platforms have generated huge, they have installed capacity and massive install bases. It's going to be very hard to break them up without also creating a 
bad uh, effects for people, right? So people rely too much. Like take Facebook. So many small companies rely on Facebook for their cheap advertising. They could not even advertise and run their businesses before, and now they have that platform. So, you know, there's a lot of good being done by these social media platforms, but they also have the power to misuse, uh, you know, the influence they have. So I think maybe a bit late to do that, although the U.S., uh, uh, Department of Justice and uh, uh, FTC are both getting in into looking at these digital giants now. But I think going forward, we are going to have so many new technologies, really disruptive technologies from AI to autonomous vehicles. I mean, the list goes on in the bioscience space that it's going to be very important for states to get in early to be able to figure out, you know, what are the issues along with the private sector and the government sector, just like, as I said, with autonomous vehicles, the government is doing that in the UK and many American states. They're going in there early, they're working, they're uh, coordinating the activities of many different players and they're letting them do trials, they're collecting the data and they're getting a sense of what works or what doesn't work, what needs to be regulated. They're understanding things like, you know, what will it do to employment patterns? So if autonomous vehicles take off, one of the negative consequences could be that a lot of people lose a job. People who are taxi drivers or are truck drivers, what do we do about them? What are the new jobs that might be created? How can we uh, retrain people? Uh, you want to do that early before the negative consequences are too much to deal with. So I think your second question requires a real shift and a stepping up of governments. They really need to step up on understanding new technologies and regulating in a smart way early rather than doing this too late. Makes sense. And Jadeep, we have some very fascinating questions coming from the audience, but I'll, I'll just read one couple of them for you, The one of them. Uh, and the question is by Ganesh. He says, like, we have great bureaucrats in India and some mediocre ones, but how do we as citizens ensure they feel empowered to think and act independent of the vagaries of their political masters? How yeah. do you do that? Because that's an important question and that, that's a huge issue as well. That's a huge question. And this is a question that uh, all countries grapple with. You know, so the UK, which like India has a permanent civil service. So that means that there are people who are in the civil service, regardless of who's running the country, who, which political party is in power. And the idea there is that gives you some sense of continuity. They are really the custodians and therefore they should have the space to uh, basically keep the country's interests at heart, but they still have to deliver on the political will because the people who have been elected to do the job are the politicians, not the bureaucrats. And in the US, they have a different system. When somebody is elected, they can bring their own civil servants. That's what the US president will do. They'll bring their own uh, people into positions of power, and that's how they ensure that they get their job done. But that too, the commitment is to the people who have voted for them on, on, on that platform. So, I mean, you know, bureaucrats have a really tough job because they have to deliver on the political will, but they have to ensure that that's done in a constitutional way and that it, you know, serves the interests of people. So I think, you know, there is no simple solution, but what you, what you have to do is you have to get the right people. So you have to have a really good selection process. Then you have to train them. And then you have to motivate them throughout their careers. I think India does a pretty good job on the selection front. 
um, you know, I have had, as I said, the good fortune of talking to and training civil servants from India, and they are very high caliber. There's no doubt about that. Now, the question is, what are they high caliber with, though? Often, their, their knowledge is kind of book knowledge, right? Because they've taken exams to get it. Now, that's good. You need to know stuff. But you also you need to know about you know, what works. But you also got to know the soft stuff, you know, how to manage people, how to lead people, how to communicate uh, a plan to people and get people on board, how to manage stakeholders, uh, how to do complex project management. A lot of these are soft skills that you can learn on the job, but you can also be trained to get better at. And, and that's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. So how civil servants are trained and motivated and constantly update their skills is a big one. I mean, this is something that the private sector is learning and individuals are learning that now you, you know, your degree is only maybe worth a couple of years and you'll have to retool, right? And then you can do this, but not by having to take another degree and go to university for a year, you can take lots of courses. Increasingly now these are online. So I think that uh, approach of that mindset of constantly improving, constantly learning, and not just hard stuff like what works, but how to get it done. Uh, learning by doing, that kind of stuff. And the Bangladesh example I gave is really interesting. This ongoing training program, not only of the elite civil servants, but all the way down in these soft skills like empathy, you know, like we can always say, oh, we should have empathy, but you can train this by actually role-playing, you know, putting people in the place of the citizens so they take the citizens' perspective and then using, you know, like design thinking principles, like working backwards from your understanding of the problem to then redesigning the solution. This is something that companies and particularly the most successful like digital companies do routinely. Can we bring that kind of thinking, those kinds of skills into government? I think if we could do that, that could have a transformative effect. Nah, interesting. And then just just one more uh, thing, you know, coming up here is that we, we you've talked about the government, you've talked about people, but then what do you think uh, is the role of civil society in the world today? Because that becomes a very important uh, space that we have to really uh, look at. And how, how do you think they can really fit into the system? Yeah, I think that's a that's a big one. You know, we've seen so we've seen, of course, the power of companies, especially the digital giants. We talked a lot about that. We know that the government has, of course, a lot of power historically and, uh, you know, now getting more powers through digital surveillance and so on, and they, which they may not give up. But I think civil society also has uh, tremendous power and, again, interestingly enabled often by digital technologies. So, you know, we've seen uh, these movements spread very quickly in response to some event or some trend you know, over the last few years. So we had uh, post the financial crisis, we had the Occupy movement, then we had Extinction Rebellion in response to climate change. And, you know, where a school girl, a young girl like Greta can motivate so many people to organize and protest uh, and hold governments and companies to account, shame them on social media. You know, here our, our, our kids were allowed by their schools, the state schools, they're usually not, a, we're not allowed to take our kids out of school without permission. We can be fined for that. When there were protest marches, the school gave permission. They said, you can take your kids out, but you just have to 
tell us that they're going on this march, you know, led by young people. So we've seen Extension Rebellion, we've seen the Me Too movement, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement. And these, you know, spontaneously, they can spark and through social media, we saw Arab Spring, you know, so in India, we saw anti-corruption movements. So there's tremendous power in these movements and they can make change, certainly they can make change. But, you know, I think sometimes there's a lot of theater associated with it and they seem to perhaps ebb and flow and, you know, it's mostly, as I see it, a lot of it is around emotion, and that's important. Yes, there may be anger and frustration, but then the systemic change doesn't necessarily follow. And that's why I argue that probably the most effective way of really getting systemic change is to go and work for the government. And I think, you know, it's a very exciting space to be when I, you know, interviewing people who are involved with Aadhaar, including some of my classmates um, from uh, my undergraduate days at IIT, many of these guys who had gone to work for Google and uh, IBM and so on, volunteered to work for Aadhaar because it was, first of all, it was just technically so interesting, such a big project, such a challenging technical project, they would not have had an opportunity to work on, but also because of the purpose, right, the, what a difference it could make and the leadership and all these things. So, you know, it can be tremendously exciting. And I see there's a question from one of my classmates, Alok Ramsasarya. So it's great that he's on here as well. He'll know some of these people like uh, Vivek Raghavan, who was the head of biometrics at Aadhaar. So, you know, if, if some of the brightest talent in a country like India went to work in government uh, and not necessarily into their own startup or Google or Flipkart or whatever it is, you know, it will make a tremendous difference. And not just the typical person who goes to work for the government, you know, not the typical bureaucrat, what we call a babu, but somebody who's uh, like an entrepreneur in a way, but wants to make a change and innovate within the government. I think that kind of person could be tremendously useful. And we have so many talented young people, if they went into government to do that role, I think that would make a big difference. Or they could work with government from the outside, whether they have a startup or a company, they can work with government, or if they have an NGO, they can work with government. So I think a bit more collaboration on that front. So what you're clearly saying is that uh, this getting people from outside can give a very fresh perspective of how things need to be seen and we can change. And that's how it is. But to your point, when you talk about these movements, like that there are some very interesting movements that have actually happened in the past. But don't you think that these movements can also take a shape of something like mob justice? Uh, yeah. Because, you know, like the social media does bring that danger. And that also brings in a huge issue of how governance needs to happen. How do we need to manage things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I'm, I got mixed feelings about uh, that kind of activism. You know, I think it's often it's some kind of response is needed when you see injustice and you see corruption or whatever it is that really upsets you. I think, you know, there's the emotional outpouring and you need that, you need a vent. And I think all, all societies and governments should allow people to protest and so on. But beyond a point, you know, some people could just, it, they make a career out of protesting, you know, uh, and it's not necessarily going to be productive. And in some cases it can be counterproductive. So, you know, the Arab Spring has been a very, un, you know, uh, un, ineffective kind of movement. It was so promising at one point, but it seems to have had the opposite effect of actually reinforcing the control of authoritarian leaders 
because of the chaos that ensued, you know, so even people who supported some of these protest movements, if the protest movement doesn't lead to some kind of positive systemic change and only creates further chaos, then people may prefer to go back to the old way of things. Um, so, you know, I think more responsible kind of uh, activism is needed. And I think the most responsible kind of activism is where you do something to change the situation. In India, we have lots of people who have set up startups and social enterprises. Many of the people we wrote about in Jugaad and so on are of that sort. But then in some cases, you know, you can't keep it small. You have to scale it. And that's where partnership with the government can be very effective. But equally, it requires people on the other side in government to have that openness of mindset. You see, so it's a, the, both sides have to play with each other in that way. I think you're suggesting, uh, like even if we are able to implement partially some of the suggestions, it can make the world so, so much a better place for citizens, for governments, and so many things. But uh, as all things have to come to an end, uh, I have one final question, but I think I will request everybody to read the book. Sorry, it is not coming in the screen. It's called How Should the Government Be? Uh, and I, I think it's just one of the most interesting, fascinating reads that I actually had uh, in the last uh, few months. Uh, so I, I would suggest that everybody should look at it. But beyond the three books that you have done, Jai, what are three books that you would suggest to people that they should really pick up and read beyond your books uh, and which have had a huge impact on it? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, so uh, just off the top of my head, uh, a book that actually influenced me a lot uh, a while ago was um, Imagining India by Nandan Nilekani, where actually this was this book, his book came out probably in 2008, I'm thinking. And in it, he, you know, identified several big issues that India faced. One of them was this issue that practically half of the population and the most vulnerable half didn't have a way to identify themselves uniquely. Uh, and he proposed the solution of the Aadhaar in that book. And I think that's how he then got invited to do it in government. So that's a very important book for me. Um, uh, and um, I would mention that. Then there has been a book uh, more recently uh, about surveillance capitalism by uh, Susanna Zuboff, who I, uh, I think uh, is a professor at Harvard. Uh, very interesting, powerful book um, about the power of uh, companies' uh, use of digital and data and some of the dangers of that, which we've discussed a bit of. Um, I think that perhaps it uh, probably goes to one extreme in being critical of uh, digital when there are many benefits. And but nevertheless, she raises, go ahead. Yeah, she raises interesting points, but yeah. she seems to be a very big supporter of Apple as well. Yeah, so, you know, everyone has their, you, one has to always read between the lines and so on. But, you know, still uh, interesting points. Um, and then perhaps um, uh, just a recent book I um, uh, read, and embarrassingly, I'm forgetting, um, uh, okay, I think it's called Homeland Elegies. Uh, that's the title. It's not a, a book about, it's not, it's uh, it's actually kind of fiction, uh, but it's more like biography. It's by uh, an, a Pakistani-American uh, writer, um, and I'm even blanking on his name, but it's, the book is called Homeland Elegies. And it's very much about uh, what it's like growing up uh, as someone with mixed identities, uh, someone whose parents were from Pakistan, migrated to the US, 
and he grew up in the US and then had to deal with these two identities. And very interestingly, it's also about his relationship with his parents, particularly his father, who was an eminent doctor and, and actually treated Donald Trump before he became president and became a supporter of Donald Trump. So this guy, the son is like torn between his love for his father and the, his hatred or his disdain for Donald Trump. And he can't understand how his father or anyone like that educated person could vote for Donald Trump. So it's a fascinating book, which in some ways captures some of the things we were talking about in terms of the tribalism of our times, how even in families, people could have very different uh, political views and then they have difficulty communicating with each other because they're really, these views are almost uh, like at a very non-rational level, very deep within us. And we support uh, uh, a particular political camp because of some deep rooted identity that we have. Uh, so anyway, those are some three books that come to mind. Jaydeep, this has just been such a fascinating interaction. I, mean, I just love that we could have gone on for hours on this. This is this this topic is so vast and dear to me, dear to you. Um, so this is this is just interesting, and I, I hope we are able to get on to another conversation sometime soon. But thanks a lot for joining in today. It has just been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on Simple Dialogue. Uh, thanks, Jaydeep. Thanks. Likewise, Amit. Thank, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for these wonderful questions and conversation, and thank you for everyone who joined. Uh, I see some names of people who I recognize. I mentioned Alok. Alok, it's great to see you on this uh, call. And then um, I think uh, Shalini Ars too. So there's some familiar names. Thank you so much for joining. Really great to have you uh, on this session. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry.